It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who might throw a very bad pitch at the opening of an MLB game. <laughs> hey, one of your hosts is that way for sure. I think both of our hosts are that way. <laughs> Not to tattle on myself, oh, but man. the last time I played softball when I was 18, I got up to bat and mm-hmm. every single person not only moved to the infield, but like mm-hmm. way in. And I was like, yeah. you know what? I'm just... I struck out on a tee once in my youth, so uh, yeah. I mean, it works. That that's okay. Our job is to make sure that nobody catches anything, just like Dr. Fauci's. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Today we are going to be talking to Dr. Stephen Lewandowski from University of Bristol. He is a specialist in basically uh, how the brain copes with propaganda and misinformation and what that means when it comes to conspiracy theories. Before we get to that, of course, we've got our Around the Webs, but before we do our Around the Webs, I want to invite all of our listeners to themselves be Vax Vax Talk guests. And what sort of guests um, you might be wondering? Well, we want to invite you on to play a game, the kind of game where maybe you ask us to hold a little bit while you think of the answers um, as though you're listening to public radio, those kinds of games. Um, You know, pause, pause, Mm -hmm. tell me not. (laughs) Cease and desist. I am still mulling this answer over. That's a, Something yes, like that. that's what we will call the episode. Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> if you want to do that, just shoot me an email at info at voicesforvaccines.org. Tell me who you are, where you live, why we should pick you. It doesn't have to be a long email. It can just be something like, Karen, I think you're the best. Mm-hmm. And you're so cool, and I just want to hang out with you for a couple minutes. I mean, anything that's true like that. So we'd love to have you on. We want to talk to you. We want to make you uh, podcast famous. And uh, I would say with my mom, but my mom doesn't listen to this podcast, which is sad. Um, so <laughs> Neither does mine. So we're just our wonderful listeners. Yeah, my husband doesn't either. <laughs> when I listen to you talking on a podcast, you talk at me all day. <laughs> Heard it all before. Yep, I hear you. Yes, go ahead. I have a piece I found on the interwebs on The Hill titled, How Excited Should We Be About Coronavirus Vaccine Progress? And Mm -hmm. What is Dual Immune Action? I will say, in all of my time being a vaccine loudmouth, Mm -hmm. I have never heard the term dual immune action. So that's what caught my eye about this. So this is what it says in the article. The researchers behind the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine candidate 
called AZD1222. Catchy. Great name. Yeah. Put that in a song. <laughs> AZD1222. I just did. <laughs> Okay. Previously published <laughs> press releases about the preliminary results. The Lancet paper presents data from the combined phase 1-2 clinical trial of the vaccine. The vaccine candidate, quote, provoked a T-cell response within 14 days of vaccination, end quote, and, quote, an antibody response within 28 days, end quote, states a press release from the Oxford University. So here's here's the uh, money paragraph, the one mm-hmm. that I was looking for. These two different types of immune responses, which some are unofficially calling dual immune response or dual immune action, T cells are the white blood cells which can identify and remember pathogens they've encountered before. Antibodies are the proteins that it can attach to foreign particles. Neutralizing antibodies are antibodies that attach to a pathogen in a place that prevents it from entering the cells. So the dual immune, the dual immune action, I like that one, <laughs> is when we have both antibodies and T cells. I think the reason we've never heard from that is because, generally speaking, we expect vaccines to elicit uh, memory cells right. so that when we encounter a, a, lo- a live path, not a live pathogen, when we encounter a fully virulent pathogen mm-hmm. that our body remembers how to fight it off. So there we are. What's the concern? What's the main concern of the article then? The article basically goes on to say that the phase three clinical trials you know, we have yet to see what's going to happen there. And of course, those are really important because in phase three, we vaccinate enough people. We vaccinate tens of thousands of people. And then we give, you know, 10,000 or so people a placebo and we compare their outcomes. So are the people who are vaccinated truly, even if they're mounting antibody and T cell responses, are they truly not getting sick as much as the placebo group and also uh looking at side effects obviously um so i guess i mean i guess the thing is is that you know i I think it's fine to be excited um Mm -hmm. but as the article points out there's still a lot of data that's got to come in yeah and a lot of the public doesn't understand what that data is going to look like or what to look for in that data. And we're so starved for hope and good news that the media is sort of maybe overinflating how hopeful we should be. So I feel like now there's in this article, but in a lot of different places, there's sort of tempering of expectations. And I think we should help contribute to that. I, I don't want to... Uh, in, in terms of tempering expectations, I think it's very important to support vaccine development. But in terms of wh- how this is going to play out, hanging our hat on the vaccine is going to come and then this is all going to be over is very nebulous as a possibility right now. I would really, I'm really trying to encourage families to plan for the long term in terms of sustainable mm-hmm. activities, in terms of getting used to wearing masks, in terms of what you're deciding on doing regarding school um, for a year or years <laughs> to be thinking about how 
to keep your family safe and still do you know be part you know with kids and whatnot getting them the experiences they need the social interaction that they need while being safe like that all takes a lot of planning unfortunately it also takes a lot of organization on the state and national level that isn't happening everywhere and um, that makes it all the more difficult but yeah I, we can't just be waiting and saying that oh yeah there's gonna be a vaccine and like does that's just not how this is gonna play out it's, it's sort of how we operate as a society, right? We want to keep our comfort. We don't want to have to make hard decisions. And we're hoping that the scientists or the technology people will come along and give us the silver bullet that saves us all from ourselves. So that's, it's, n- it's not new behaviors, but I think what would be helpful is if everyone were encouraged to develop a different attitude about their own responsibility toward not just public health, but public good that we've certainly lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, think, I think that's what will save us is if everyone is dedicated to that public good, including, you know, getting your flu shot. If a vaccine comes out that's promising, getting a COVID vaccine, including those things, but also including wearing a mask, maybe stop going to bars, dang it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't have don't have that giant reunion with your family where everyone's hanging out for 6 hours today. Choose, choose grocery stores that uh you require masks for customers and for employees even if you're just picking up the groceries uh, go to ones that will that that you do online ordering go to the ones that require masks for um employees and for customers not not naming any names yeah. there no i know exactly the, the one you're thinking of is the one i prefer to pick up at mm-hmm. oh gosh i'm gonna have to go back to the to the um one that Competitor. I like less, but <laughs> yes. at least requires, right? <sighs> okay. So, what's your around the web? Well, another thing that would be very responsible is if um, television stations would stop airing factually inaccurate and debunked conspiracy theories about uh, COVID nineteen, Karen. So. Mm. One such situation, uh, you might recall a little 25-minute, what I would like to call a crockumentary called Plandemic that was <laughs> featuring a, one Judy Mikovits, who has both conspiracy theories against coronavirus and Dr. Fauci, and also has a whole, the, 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 the film itself has a whole load of just outright factual inaccuracies about vaccines in general like she goes on a little rant about vaccines and basically says that certain kinds of vaccines are not effective and all of which are easily and objectively disprovable and so for a while here it was um, the the Sinclair stations around the country were going to air I, I think part of the documentary is part of a segment that they were doing on just stuff in America and so you know a, it seemed like 
pretty big social media outcry. Um, they must have got contacted a lot because as of this recording last night, they pulled it. They pulled the program from their schedule. And so once again, that whack-a-mole has been kind of whacked down. This was actually removed from YouTube for being inaccurate and dangerous because it encourages people to do things that are dangerous for their health. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, uh, that's fortunately been whacked back down. But it again brings up this situation where we have to recognize that people that are actively trying to promote information that is harmful, that's not a free speech issue. That's a health and, and endangerment of other people issue. Mm -hmm. And it's very responsible for companies to not promote that, not allow themselves to be the, uh, the media through which it's disseminated. So, you know, I think there's a lot to criticize Sinclair about, period, but good on them for caving to pressure and taking it down and good on everybody who did actually participate in contacting them and give, putting on the pressure to remove something that's dangerous from the airwaves. For sure. I never got past the point of trying to figure out who their advertisers were. Uh, I was <laughs> trying to do that and then all of a sudden they announced that and I was like, well, make it easy on me. That Yay. was really hard to track down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I think it's time to transition into our discussion with Stephen Lewandowski. And after the break, we will talk to him. We're now joined by Dr. Stephen Lewandowski. He is a cognitive scientist at the University of Bristol. He studies people's responses to misinformation and propaganda and how corrections affect our memory. And he also studies why people reject scientific facts like vaccines. He is the author of the popular Conspiracy Theory Handbook, which is amazing, and I will link to in the show notes because everyone should have access to it. So welcome, Steve. It's so glad. We're so glad to see you. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So we don't usually do uh, video chats with people. Usually we're, we're just audio. Um, and so when people are listening to this, they're not going to see what we're seeing. But Steve is apparently on, uh, which mountain is this, Everest? No, quite. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the Dolomites. And, uh, it's, but it's pretty tall, relatively speaking. It took a while to get up there. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, we're so glad to have you. Um, I just want to start with a piece that was written last week in Vice by one of our favorite journalists, Anna Merlin, who has followed many conspiracy theorists over the years and has really an inside view in a lot of their goings on. So this piece is called The Conspiracy Singularity Has Arrived. The strain of living in this particular time with a dragging, devastating pandemic and a global uprising against police brutality and racial injustice crashing together at the highest speed has accelerated something that's been going on for years. Call it the conspiracy singularity, the place where many conspiracy communities are suddenly meeting and merging, a melting pot of unimaginable density. UFO conspiracy theorists and QAnon fans are advocating for a drinking for drinking a bleach solution promoted by anti-vaxxers. QAnon groups and Reopen America groups alike promoted Plandemic, a film clip jam-packed with conspiratorial claims about the causes and spread of COVID. 
So my first question is, well, first of all, do you agree with Anna Merlin? And if so, how did we get to this place where we've got QAnon and Reopen America and UFOs and Plandemic and anti-vaxxers all sort of meeting into this one grand conspiracy place? Well, it's a very good question. I think um, we can answer that on the basis of existing research. Uh, one of the things we have known for a long time is that for many people, if they believe in one conspiracy, they will also believe in many others. We even have a word for that. It's called a monological reasoning system which is that for some people, uh, the attraction of conspiracy theories is so vast that they will believe in any of them. So chemtrails, QAnon, anti-vax, uh, climate denial is a hoax, the moon landing was faked, all of that clusters together. We have data on that. <clears throat> the best predictor of, of, you know, if you want to know whether somebody will believe in a COVID conspiracy theory, well, if you know they believe in another conspiracy theory, then that's probably your best predictor. So, so in that sense, there's, there's nothing surprising there because conspiracy theories are a style of thinking that um, sort of tends to cluster together and all conspiracy theories have attributes that, that are very similar. Now, uh, why is it happening right now? Well, Again, we can go back to history and we can look at what's happened in previous pandemics. And it turns out that for the last 500 or 600 years, whenever there is a pandemic, there are also conspiracy theories of one variety or another. In the Middle Ages, uh, the plague gave rise to outbreaks of even greater anti-Semitism. Uh, in the late 19th century, uh, when, when there was a, a pandemic, a cholera epidemic in Russia. Um, people were chasing doctors and nurses down the street because of the conspiracy theory that doctors and nurses were responsible for this disease. So, you know, we, we have had um, outbreaks of uh, conspiracy theories with pandemics for hundreds of years. And that's not surprising because if you look at the psychology of conspiracy theories, then one of the things that you notice is that conspiracy theories tend to be a response to, to, to people feeling that they've lost control or uh, that they're disenfranchised or when they're frightened or if they feel left behind by society. So in a nutshell, conspiracy theories are for losers. That's my colleague Joe Shinsky coined that term. I think it's beautiful. That sums it up. Conspiracy theories are for losers. And in a pandemic, a lot of people feel like they're losers because they've lost control. They, they, you know, their life has been turned upside down. And so under those circumstances, people, some people find comfort in a conspiracy theory because at least it allows them to blame somebody uh, for what is going on rather than having to accept that it was effectively a random event. Um, people are... By not everybody, but a lot of people would prefer to have an enemy or a person they can blame for something rather than just accepting a random accident. 
I want to, first I want to mention that a few years ago, one of my colleagues and I, we gave a lecture on debunking actually to our, the medical school in town. And we leveraged, we referenced your debunking handbook quite a bit for that. So I wanted to thank you for that reference. That was incredibly helpful to us. Um, We're about to update it. Yes, good. Three months, we'll have an update. But uh, now, but now yeah. we have the conspiracy theory handbook that does cover some of that information. And some yeah. of the other things that jumped out at me when I read your handbook was you talking about, first of all, how real conspiracies do exist. And you listed a few examples of those. Yes. The real question then is, and you do, do talk about it in the handbook, but can you tell us a bit about how to tell the difference between a real conspiracy and a false conspiracy? Totally. That's a crucial question, of course, because you're absolutely right. I mean, real conspiracies are, you know, they exist all the time. The NSA conspired to, to you know, eavesdrop on the American people and Iran-Contra happened. Oliver North was selling weapons to the Contras through Iran in the 1980s from the basement of the White House, you know, which was illegal. And it was a classic conspiracy. So, you know, we, we have these classic conspiracies that happen. But here's the interesting thing. If you look at the history of actual conspiracies, you find that they were uncovered by perfectly legitimate, conventional, normal, quote unquote, means, such as newspapers. The Iran-Contra scandal broke because a Lebanese newspaper reported it. They somehow got wind of it and they reported it. And that was the beginning of the unraveling. And the Volkswagen diesel scandal just recently was also a classic conspiracy. And what happened there was that it was a team of engineers who were doing the tests on the cars and they discovered that something funny was going on. And that led to the thing being discovered. So whenever we know of a conspiracy, we know of it because of journalists, whistleblowers, investigators, who through completely mainstream means and very conventional evidence-based cognition uh, figure out what's going on. By contrast, if you're looking at conspiracy theories, that is at theories that we have every reason to believe are wrong, then what you find out is that the people who disseminate them and talk about them and believe in them think very differently. Their cognition is very different from that of mainstream journalists or scientists, and I would argue it is actually flawed. It is not a very good way of tracking reality. Now, let me give you some examples, because one of the fascinating things about that is that regardless of which conspiracy theory people believe, all of them tend to involve these common cognitive characteristics. And the first one that I like is uh, a lot is incoherence. Conspiracy theories are always ultimately incoherent. Uh, they contradict themselves. They're, they're not hanging together at all. And the moment you discover that, you can already be pretty sure that that theory can't be right because reality does not contradict itself. The Earth is not both flat and round. It is round, end of story. And so, whereas scientists are striving for coherence as a hallmark of a theory being, you know, having a chance of being true, conspiracy theorists are unconcerned by that. 
in this movie that's been going around uh, until YouTube took it down, um, where it is alleged that COVID is the result of a, of a conspiracy. Well, it's, it's wonderful. They, they interview this person who is spinning uh, uh, this um, story. And she says, on the one hand, the uh, uh, COVID virus has been with us since we were children. Uh, we were given the virus through vaccinations. And the reason we get it now is because we started wearing masks. And that has triggered it. Now, that's complete nonsense, of course. But what's interesting is that five minutes later or earlier in the same movie, the same person was claiming that the virus came out of a chemical weapons factory in China. Well, it can't be, it can't be both. I mean, of course, that's wrong, too. So there are two falsehoods put together in an incoherent package. And the moment people believe things that, that do not cohere, you can be pretty sure that that's a conspiracy theory. And indeed, it's one that's, that's, that can't be true. And the same thing is true elsewhere. We have people who think that Princess Diana was murdered by MI5, but they also then think that she was faking her own death. Well, she can't do that if she's dead. So, you know, um, there, there are all these things, and most conspiracy theories are incoherent if you look at them carefully enough. I want to go back to this idea that you mentioned about powerlessness. So it makes sense that a lot of people are feeling powerless now. It's, you know, it's a frightening world when you think about something that you can't even see with your naked eye completely upending your life and society around you. But if we go back to pre-pandemic times and we think about vaccines in particular, since this is a vaccine-based podcast, and how vaccines in a lot of ways have given us more power to live our lives with more freedom Indeed. and more control over our lives, how did vaccines get caught up in the conspiracy theories? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question as well. And what that opens up is a whole arena of uh, science denial and people denying science, be it vaccinations, GMO, climate change, evolution. You know, there's a lot of scientific topics where some people just refuse to accept the evidence. And vaccinations is probably... Uh, um, a big one because the impact of that is um, detrimental to society on a, on a very large scale. So now there's two things to, to, to say here. The first one is that if you are motivated to reject science, how are you going to explain a way that all the doctors and all the academics are supporting the science because when the science is strong that is what happens there is a scientific consensus in the medical community there is no doubt or no debate about the efficacy of vaccines there is no debate about climate change among climate scientists because it's an established fact so how do you deal with that if you're if you're motivated to deny the science well one way to do that is to postulate a conspiracy among the scientists who are out to make money for themselves or the pharmaceutical industry or they're trying to create the world government through climate change by creating this hoax you know you can use a conspiracy the allegation of a conspiracy to get out of jail for free because you can then dismiss the evidence because you don't like it 
and I have data that are that are currently in you know about to be published. I hope uh, that show that that people deploy conspiracy theories as a rhetorical tool to to protect their need to dismiss science. So having said that, then the next question is, well, <laughs> where does this need to reject science come from? Why do people then have this need to, to reject vaccinations? And there it turns out, very interestingly, that more often than not, it is political ideology. In climate change, I can ask people four questions about how they feel about free market economics. And anybody who says, oh, I think free markets are the best things in sliced bread, I can predict with, with fairly good certainty that they will deny climate change. With vaccinations, it turns out, it's the same thing. I ask people about their political attitudes or their, their free market attitudes. And if they're libertarians or conservatives, then I know, aha, uh -huh, there's a good likelihood that they might reject vaccinations. Now, that's understandable if you consider the implications of climate change and vaccinations. The implications of climate change are that we have to change the way we do business. That's anathema to libertarians. You know, regulations and taxes, come on, whoa, that's terrible. So therefore, climate change has to be a hoax because if it weren't, we would have to do something about it that we don't like. And with vaccinations, it is similar, a similar thing because vaccinations very often come with government involvement, rules, mandates at times. You can't send your kids to school unless they're vaccinated. Well, that's government interference, isn't it? Into parenting. And that is what is triggering in some people uh, a resistance to um, science that is otherwise well established. So it boils down to ideology usually. One of the newer ideas that I got from your handbook here was the idea of pre-bunking. So I talk a lot about debunking. I did, like I said, a lecture on debunking. Pre-bunking, I, I mean, the idea is somewhat familiar, but it, it's, it's nice to hear it put in those terms. Tell us about pre-bunking. What is it and how specifically can we apply it to vaccines and also to COVID-19 conspiracies? Right. Well, the, the basic idea of pre-bunking is to get there first. The idea is to tell people that they are about to be misinformed and to alert them to the techniques, the rhetorical techniques that might be used to mislead them. So, for example, if we tell people, we've done this in one of our experiments, if we tell people about the tobacco industry strategy to use fake experts to undermine the medical knowledge about lung cancer, you know, they dress up some dude in a white coat, give him a stethoscope, and then put him on, a, on an ad saying, you know, 30,000 physicians smoke Lucky Strike or something. Well, if we tell people that that's how he, they were misled back in the 60s and 70s, they then know, they then become more resistant to similar misinformation attempts about climate change now. So they become more resistant to contemporary ways of using that fake expert strategy. And that's the essence of pre-bunking, that what you do is you expose people to, to, the, to a microdose 
of, of the virus, the informational virus that they might be exposed to, and then they become inoculated and they're no longer susceptible to it. And so if you can get to people first, and if you can anticipate how they will be misled, then pre-bunking is, is the way to go. Now, the obvious limitation is that it, what do you do if it's too late, if they've already been immersed in all this? Well, then you can't use pre-bunking. Then you have to go to debunking, which is much harder uh, and doesn't always work as we expect. I mean, it sort of works some of the time, most of the time, but, you know, it's far trickier than pre-bunking. So at the moment, there's a lot of scientific work showing that pre-bunking is a better way to go. That is the last question I wanted to ask you is about, um, you know, I have a, a family member who in this time of COVID has stepped into some conspiratorial thinking. So, you know, someone like me, how do we how do we handle that person? Obviously, we want to retain a loving relationship with this person. And we want to, you know, that's always first and foremost is staying close to people. But at the same time, we don't want people to buy into conspiracy yes. theories that might hurt them. Yes, I know. There's always an Uncle Bruce, isn't there, who's, who's at the barbecue and then all of a sudden starts saying these things. Um, yes, I know it well. It's very, it's not easy. It's problematic because you're trying to retain a relationship with a person who you believe is completely misled about those things. Um, there is no silver bullet. And I doubt, depending on how far they've gone down the rabbit hole, if they're all the way down the rabbit hole, it's going to be extremely challenging because another aspect of conspiratorial thinking, of course, is that it is self-sealing. Meaning that if anybody is trying to correct the conspiracy theory, then the guy just says, oh, well, you're part of it. You work for the government or you're, you're one of these stupid people who doesn't see the truth. You're just, uh, you know, like, like uh, outside the matrix or whatever. So, so, so they're in a, in a bubble that can be extremely difficult to, to penetrate. The best that I can say is that, well, if you really want to make a difference, this is going to take a very long time and it's going to be a lot of work and you have to show a lot of empathy and, a, you know, you're basically turning into a psychotherapist and you're trying to get somebody out of a cult. And we know that that is notoriously difficult. I mean, they're escaping a cult has always been problematic. There are a lot of people who become completely uh, uh, encapsulated in a cult, you know, to the point where they will commit mass suicide by drinking Kool-Aid in wherever that was, Guatemala or something in the 1970s. Once people are really, really down the, the rabbit hole, things are very difficult. Uh, all I can suggest there is, is to just, well, if you really have the time and it's important to you, then you have to spend the time and read the Conspiracy Theory Handbook, and it gives you a few pointers about that. But it's not something that's going to happen over a Thanksgiving dinner in, in, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. Quite on the contrary, it may go very badly if you only have a limited amount of time and you, you, you know, you, you can't really agree with anything and if you then contradict somebody you know it can get to be very heated and unpleasant so yeah it's very difficult well that's uplifting that's the real yeah people who just say this conspiratorial stuff because it's convenient they're easy to deal with you just you just say well no hang on actually it's it's different and and people are responsive to that
Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is the moment they, they're committed and it becomes part of their identity yeah. and they feel that they're the only people who can see the truth and it's everybody else who's just this normal person who's buying stuff the government is, is telling them. The moment you have that, it's very difficult. Um, you know, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. That half hour went super fast. Thanks. We could talk to you for hours, but um, <laughs> you probably have a mountain you want to climb. So, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us you today. Bet. All right. Our call to action then this week is that you look in the show notes for this episode and click on that conspiracy theory handbook and read it because it might just help you. I also want to say that there is some information available that even if you just comment on some piece of misinformation, something like, I don't buy that, I think that's wrong, I don't believe you, that really helps inoculate people also against buying into that. So do something to sort of strike down misinformation this month. Yeah, definitely. I Like I mentioned in the interview, I, I have read, I had read his debunking handbook and used it um, in certain lectures that I've given in the past. And then the conspiracy theory handbook is really fantastic. It breaks down things. It's easy to understand. Um, it's not too complicated or too like high level talk. So it's really something that anybody that's kind of interested in making sure that they um, are helping to get rid of bad information on the internet anybody can really understand and use it It has some great graphics in there breaks things down really easily so definitely do that and it's one of those things uh where i've always like like you're kind of saying always helps to push back a little bit on misinformation one of the things i've always said is you don't have to get into an argument you can say even if you say something and then you don't go back to it but you say you know what i've done a lot of reading on this and it really seems like the experts all think that this is not true and that this is true that's helpful because at least some people who see that misinformation will then see something that somebody that seems like they know what they're talking about (laughs) has pushed back and you don't have to get back and forth if you don't know all the ins and outs of every argument that's okay you're still doing your part exactly all right with that in mind it's time for us to go. So my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Moonstra, uh, General Pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital, Des Moines, Iowa. Find me on Twitter or Facebook. I go by PedsGeekMD, or you can find my blog, pedsgeekmd.org. All right, facts talk out. Bye.